You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. This show is owned and operated by professional emergency managers at Doberman Emergency Management. We apply disaster tough logic by protecting life, property, and business continuity through planning, mitigation, and training. Check us out at DobermanEMG.com or click on the show notes. Radio comms just got a major breakthrough with the L3 Harris XL Extreme 400P. It's the newest and toughest radio out there. Built by their space and tactical teams, the XL Extreme series can take a beating. 1,700 degree blast of heat, repeated three meter drops, rain, salt water, you name it. The XL Extreme series by L3 Harris can take it. Visit L3Harris.com to schedule your demo today. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic reusable, yes, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called the COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's extremely easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on the COVID Plus test, check out our show notes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. So when we typically record, uh, we were actually in New York City for the EM Weekly, technically the EM Speaks webinar hosted by EM Weekly, Todd DeVoe, um, you know, one of our sister shows, part of the Readiness Lab. You make sure you check that out. Uh, but we were out there uh, supporting that event where Craig Fugate and Pete Gaynor, former FEMA administrators, were giving their perspectives. And so you should make sure you look that up. It's a really great uh, live webinar that happened that I'm sure is recorded on EM Weekly. So again, uh, check out that show. But because we were out there, we didn't have an opportunity to record and it's Thanksgiving week. So we're going to pull in another FEMA administrator, Brock Long, and uh, pull up his content from about, uh, what was it, nine, 10 months ago, where you guys can check it out. It's really good. So between Craig Fugate, Pete Gaynor, and Brock Long, you should have a pretty good uh, perspective of what uh, FEMA administrators have been thinking about, at least um, from a leadership uh, perspective and the agency perspective. And I think it'll be really good content for you guys. We hope you have a really good Thanksgiving. We'll see you on Friday. It's a huge episode. We're going to be talking about the Mumbai terrorist attacks because it's the anniversary, 13-year anniversary with the uh, West Point uh, subject matter expert who's actually went there. Really great show coming up. But in the meantime, check out the show by Brock Long and I, and uh, we'll see you on Friday. Bye. Brock, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks. Uh, before we go any further, you got to send me one of those t-shirts. <laughs> done. I like extra, extra large. Done. I'll send you two and a hat. All right. So with uh, the Disaster Tough podcast, we've had, just before we give in, get into our meetup conversation, we just want to say thank you to everybody on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and our Instagram page, the Disaster Tough podcast, for submitting questions. We've had so many questions. I think I counted like 50 questions in the first day or so, and tons of comments. So just thanks again for everybody who reached out. All levels of the spectrum, whether you're not in emergency management, clearly you're, you're having basic questions, which is great or you've been in the field for a while and you have really specific questions for Brock. And so thank you for everybody submitting a question. And for Brock, 
taking the uh, taking the initiative for even answering some of those questions ahead of time. So thank you so much, Brock, for doing that. So FEMA administrator, living the dream there. Um, now you're with Haggerty. So let's talk about some of your career experiences because um, I was actually talking to Todd DeVoe uh, with EM Weekly. So if you're not listening to Todd, make sure you listen to him, guys. Um, but he was talking about how you're a true emergency manager because you were an emergency manager from day one. And right. so... Can you kind of give us just a little bit of a background, especially for those who, when they hear administrator, you know, they don't know what that is, right? Head of FEMA, what does that mean? So can you kind of give us your career path and, and what led you to where you're at now? Uh, man, I have had an amazing career and uh, a quick one, too. It's uh, pretty interesting. So I went to Appalachian State University in North Carolina, and uh, as I was finishing up graduate school, I heard one of my classmates do a paper on reforming FEMA as a result of Hurricane Andrew. And the, the gentleman at the time had, had done an internship in Wilmington, North Carolina, New Hanover County, along the coast. And I was like, hey, you know, that sounds really interesting. You think you could line me up that internship? So I, that's how I stumbled into emergency awesome. management. Went to Wilmington. And then I physically wrote letters to uh, state emergency management agencies in states I thought I wanted to live in. I was, it was like Colorado, <laughs> Georgia. I think we didn't send one to the Virgin Islands. You know, it was uh, you know, all over. And Georgia called me back and um, they said, hey, we're starting this. Uh, we got a big problem down here. We, we rank number one in most violent deaths in schools. And we're oh. starting the school safety unit. And we want you to come in and teach teachers how to spot weapons on the kids to, you know, mitigation of schools, you know, school safety mitigation. And so that was the first job I had. And funny enough, John, from the day I moved everything into my apartment, it, I moved into a category one storm surge zone. <laughs> And then had to rush back to Atlanta because Hurricane Floyd was threatening the Georgia coast. And it was one of the largest evacuations in history. So I, I often joke that every time I changed jobs, something catastrophic happened. And, you know, and so, <laughs> I mean, literally, I interviewed with FEMA Region 4 on the morning of 9-11. Mm. Um, I became hurricane program manager in 2004. And Florida got hit with six, you know, four major hurricanes in six weeks. And in 2005, everybody knows Katrina, you know, hits. And, uh and then, literally, uh, when I became the director of Alabama Emergency Management Agency, I got Deepwater Horizon, you know, the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. And then, of course, you know, when we go to FEMA, we had every disaster. I mean, we even had an, uh, a volcano and a hurricane at the same time <laughs> while at FEMA out in Hawaii to everything else that took place. Well, I, somebody actually commented that on, on, on LinkedIn, or no, it was Instagram, Cynthia. So shout out to Cynthia. She goes, you toured all regions in 2017, and we had the most disasters, the most impactful disasters in the history of FEMA. So maybe you should have toured. But uh, my thought process on on emergency management, and this is going to get into like definitely personal beliefs here for a second. But you know, sometimes things are organized in a way where the most prepared per person person in the room gets hit by the the hardest disasters. And so it's interesting that you've had this career where every single time you, you stepped into a new role, big things happened. And maybe it's because you were supposed to be there and help out. Um, you know, what was it? Every two or three days, every four days in FEMA, you had a new disaster pop up. And so just talk about the, the, the complexities and the, I mean, just never ending breaks, right? So it's just, just amazing. Yeah, imagine coming into an agency where you have 21,000 employees. You know, um, you know, you cover half the globe too. A lot of people don't realize you had Tinian and Saipan all the way to the Virgin Islands, half the globe. Yeah. So you're watching all over the place. Um, 
And, you know, if you look at the number of disaster dollars that are going to go out as a result of just 2017 and 18, the two years I was in office, it's more than the nine previous FEMA administrators before me combined them. So what that tells me is a couple of things. One, our, our industry, our profession, the business model is broken. Uh, the enterprise is broken. We really, and I had to concentrate on, you know, you know, stopping the hemorrhaging. Um, and and I, I really believe that the post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act set FEMA up for failure. It turned us into 911. We were not going to fail in logistics, and I get it. A failure in logistics costs you your job. Uh, we don't fire anybody for a mitigation plan, by the way. We only fire you if you failed in logistics. And so there was a lot of work to fix that and make sure that we were able to respond to the biggest event. Well, the problem was is that we were sending a ton of staff and a ton of capability for the run-of-the-mill small disasters. And when I inherited the agency, we had a large portion of our deployable staff out in the field before Harvey hit. and so. You don't see these things, and people don't tell you these things, John, when you walk in the office. Uh, and, and then two months after being confirmed, Harvey, Irma, Maria hits, the worst California wildfire at the time. But mixed into that, I think uh, over the two years, it was over 220 different wildfires and declared events. So something every three days, like you said, John. I mean, you got to the point where even the smallest disasters, you really didn't have time to pay attention to. You just were basically cutting a check to those communities while you were forced on massive multi-billion dollar events. So that, that makes me think of like the uh, USAID model where they, they call it a, a, a gift well card where they do like, a, I think it's like a 50,000. It's pretty small, but what do you think about the idea of switching over to that, that kind of model where if it's under a certain, certain, certain threshold, you say, okay, we're just going to write you a check to the state and uh, you take care of it, where we can really pull back and, and work on that strategic level or the, the true national security incidents. Yeah, so, uh, so we started to look at analysis. It was like, why are we deploying all these people uh, in the field for small disasters? And, and look, I, I, I have to be careful. A disaster is catastrophic. The, the, the definition of a catastrophic disaster is in the eye of the beholder. If you were a homeowner and you were uninsured and lost everything, that's catastrophic. Um, Absolutely. But when you sit in the FEMA administrator's seat and you start looking at the data and you realize that 50% of the disasters that you declare are less than $7.5 million, we've got we've to move past that. That's where you cut a check. Most of the work is reimbursing the loss of public infrastructure that was uninsured, which is another moral hazard we need to come back to, John. Absolutely. Um, and then if you start looking at the, you know, doing a, an even deeper dive, 80% of the disasters that FEMA declares is less than $41 million at the time I was in office. So it got to the point where we were saying, how do we, how do we not send, you know, a ton of staff down to run the disaster on behalf of the local and state government? How do we get the grants or, the influence of state and local governments to bring up their capability to manage the $41 million and less disaster so that we can concentrate on the big ones. Um, you know, and, and FEMA was spending more money on overhead for the smaller disasters than we were putting out grant dollars to fix the problem. Yeah. And that's a bad business model. That is not sustainable. And I, I really believe, John, that if FEMA was a car engine, we've been redlining as soon as Harvey hit. Right. We've never really recovered the staffing patterns. And some of you guys, I mean, you were I'm at West, you know, some of these FCOs hadn't been home since 2017. And that's not doable either. And so we have to rethink how we manage, you know, disasters in the future. And I believe there's a there's a correct formula for that. Um, And it's not a bigger FEMA, man. We've tried bigger FEMA after Andrew in 92, after Katrina. And now, you know, 
we're going to continue to pile more on FEMA's plate in the non-Stafford Disaster Act category because the public health arena needs to be reformed, not FEMA. Bigger FEMA is not the answer. Adding more to FEMA's plate right now is going to really penalize the agency on being able to respond to the natural disaster world. You know, it's just... You just said so many things that I just I want to touch on, man. That's uh, what an incredible statement that is about redlining for sure. Um, m- my thought process is, you know, from the, from the guy who uh, worked in D.C. and also worked out in the field and seeing seeing the differences there. You're right. Every disaster at the local level is catastrophic. When you lose your home and you don't have insurance, or you don't have the you, even if you do have insurance, I don't want to lose my home, right? And so um, this thought process of disaster tough behind me um, came from, uh, I'm a big words guy lately, and resiliency has its place because you do want to bounce back if something happens. But at the same time, I don't want to have a disaster. How do you become a little bit tougher? And what, what I have found is mitigation is everything. If you can mitigate disasters, if it's not impacting people or infrastructure, then you're you're way ahead of the game and rewarding people who want to do that. And, you know, we, we should really look at um, those complexities there because why are we not rewarding people for mitigating? Why are we stretching resources to the max? Yeah, John. Uh, well, first of all, the whole disaster declaration process, as I said, needs to be reconfigured and is a moral hazard. We reward communities largely and FEMA's most expensive expenditure over time is fixing uninsured public buildings and the contents within them, okay? Mm. Uh, if you want to reduce disaster costs, then you start to force these communities, these self-insured communities, to get reinsurance or insurance on their public facilities because you're the taxpayer paying for them not to put insurance in place, which is the first line of defense, not only for governments, but also for you, John Q. Citizen, that owns a home or a business. And because of that, FEMA's disaster dollars are exponentially increasing, and we're picking, we're, we're throwing tons of taxpayer dollars to reward for that. Instead of just saying, well, the disaster is so big, we should raise the normal disaster cost share from 75-25, FEMA pays 75%, the local and state governments pay 25%, we should raise it to 90-10 because the disaster is so big. What if we built incentives in to where we only lower the disaster cost to 80 90, 10, or 100% because that community has demonstrated over a three to five year period real money into their into mitigating their infrastructure, implementing land use planning, implementing proper building codes and, and residential codes. And then we start to reduce the cost share over time. And what you do is, is that you make a disaster declaration more expensive than actually having insurance in place and mitigation in place so that you start to force that a little bit. And Right now, I, I just, I believe it, and it's not only mitigation, John, it is, what are we training citizens to do and be prepared? Is the Be Ready campaign working? In, in my opinion, it's not. I, right. You know, I, I love the people that are behind it, and they work truly hard inside FEMA to do this, but come on, what are the tangible skills, John, um, that are needed? When's the last time you've done CPR? If you haven't done CPR in the last three years, what you know is, is dated. Yep. And you know, unfortunately, Americans look around at somebody else to know CPR. Um, when's the last time you sat down with a financial advisor, John, to understand how to learn how to retire and become financially resilient? Only 1% of Americans meet with a financial advisor every year. I would rather 
You take your money, instead of buying a supply kit for three to five days, I would rather you take that money and go sit down with a financial advisor and learn financial resilience. Beautiful. And insurance. Yeah. And insurance. Learn insurance. I had this video that we uh, we made, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago now, just to help people, like general public, especially when they were, when COVID was starting up, geez, a year ago now, yeah. And I said, the number one thing you do in a disaster, like when you're hit by a disaster personally, is not to tell Facebook, it's to call your insurance company. Like yeah. just understanding like how, to, how these systems work and, and getting on, on these lists um, so that you can recover faster. The, the whole idea is to get back to normal as fast as humanly possible. Uh, right. You're talking about building codes. Uh, I spent several years in Japan, especially impacted by the uh, 2011 uh, earthquake, tsunami, Fukushima disaster. And um, I, I look at their building codes in Japan and the earthquake, the 9.0 earthquake wasn't a disaster. It was a tsunami. And why is yeah. that building codes? Why is in Arizona, they're starting to put commercial sprinklers on new residential buildings, uh, wildfires? Why are these things not standard across the United States to help resiliency re reduce the level of impact to people? Why do appraisers in this country evaluate your home the same as another person's home? And, you know, despite the fact that you've dumped, you've elevated it properly, you've put, you know, hurricane resistant glass in it, you've done the mitigation, you put a generator in there, but yet we're only going to appraise your home based on location and square footage and the number of bedrooms. Beautiful. So, you know, and, and in some cases, you know, it's not just a government, like I'm not a believer in government solutions. We can get into the vaccine on that. I mean, <laughs> you know, we need to be using normal, uh, normal logistical private sector supply chains to get this vaccine in the arms of Americans, not a hundred percent government solution. Mm. And, you know, and so when you look at this, it's like, even down to the mitigation, if you want to, if you want to create change, then you got to change the narrative of, Hey, realtors, you know, any house can flood despite whether the fact you're in a flood zone or not. So encourage it. Um, hey, appraisal, you know, the, the appraiser industry, I mean, come on, step up and start mitigating these, you know, the houses that are mitigated are more valuable than the ones that aren't and, and reward the people when they sell their home, you know, of that fact. You know, and so it's not just a what can FEMA do, but 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 on that, you know, I, I went to Congress I think eight times to testify, and I had numerous meetings behind the scenes to uh, you know create the dialogue behind the DRRA, and eventually the BRIC program was started to really focus on pre-disaster mitigation. And now, as a result, I think you know you've already seen the Biden administration coming in and boasting about 10 billion, you know, being available for climate adaptation and different things. Well, that's, that's because of the DRRA and the BRIC that's and the BRIC awesome. funding to be made of made available. And so, but it can't just be that FEMA solution. It's got to be down to the city county manager that, you know, and the realtor at the grassroots level, mm -hmm. protecting their community and their book of business. Yeah. There's um, the, the Pomo Indians here in California um, they actually just reached out to me a couple weeks ago about creating a um, public safety power shutoff plan. And um, that comes out of that BRIC grant. So these communities are now are starting to look at these, these reservations or even uh, communities that um, on their, with their own dollars, they might have not been able to do something. But now with grants, they're able to actually look at problems and overcome those problems. And I thought that was great that they were being proactive. They, they sought out the grant. They're trying to find a vendor. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's somebody else. But they're trying to get these, uh, you know, these things in place for themselves, so that they're they are able to look at their vulnerable population and say, "Okay, we're going to take care of you." Um, and 
that that's everything. I created a, a hazard vulnerability assessment um, for our home. You know, I did planning and then I did ops, and then I went into GIS, which is the most bizarre career path you could possibly imagine. But I really learned like the purpose of analytics. And so when we went to buy our home, I looked at 36 natural, 36 natural and man-made disasters that could happen to our home. I looked at critical infrastructure. I looked at all these different things. And we just had a major windstorm in here in California. 90% of our neighborhood was without power for three or four days. And 10% of the neighborhood had power because we were on a different grid. And um, thankfully, my wife, it was, it, was very, it was a proud moment. We were sitting there with the lights on. She goes, I'm so glad four years ago you, you gave that document to our realtor and say, here's where we'll live. This is where we won't live based off of all these different parameters. And it wasn't doomsday prepper stuff. It was just like, oh, power lines under the ground or uh, being on the same grid as a hospital or um, here's a floodplain. We don't want to live even close to a floodplain. And so just like putting these, these parameters in place. And quite frankly, that stuff should be standard. Hazard vulnerability assessment for realtors should be standard. And yeah, but John, I'll tell you, you know, you may recall, I can't remember if you were with FEMA during the finance, you know, the shutdown and everything else. Um, one of the biggest problems that we have that is increasing the, uh, the impact of disasters is asset poverty, not income poverty of where I don't make enough money to make ends meet, but asset poverty where um, you may make six figures, but you're so highly leveraged because you drive the right car and you live in the right house and then you cut back on insurance. Mm. and you're living paycheck to paycheck, even though you make a ton of money. Yeah. Um, you know, the bottom line is, is that we, we see that that is killing FEMA. And I think FEMA has got to partner with the department of education. And it's great that we put an emphasis on math and science in our education arena, but we've got to go back and teach the fundamentals of how money works and how insurance works and just tangible life skills, not only in the department of energy, but providing those skills, uh, access to those skills in depressed neighborhoods or not really depressed neighborhoods, all neighborhoods across America, because everybody has been impacted. And it's, mm. you know, and it's something that we saw take place. And I think that, um, you know, FEMA, when you look at the health of the community, we've got to start looking at data differently. And, you know, if you can see the comprehensive credit score of the community that I live in, what I often want to know is, is that comprehensive credit score going down over a five-year period or is it going up? If it's going down, then you have more homeland security problems. You have less sales tax and income tax revenue, which means greater demand on government service with less means to pay for it. Mm. You're going to have food deserts. You're going to have more likelihood of you know, less ownership in a community, more civil disturbances, whatever it may be. So if we recognize that, then how do we get that going in the, the, the next level direction of going back up? And it's through you know, grassroots community outreach and education and access to the education on how insurance and finances work. I mean, don't be dependent on the government for your retirement, John. I mean, yeah. go sit down with you know an advisor, which is a free meeting, and learn how to do it. And and that's where I, I think we've lost that. And we've lost the tangible skills of letting the homeowner, letting you, the citizen, whether it's an active shooter event or or, or, or hurricane, you are the true first responder. Um, if you're looking around waiting for, let's just say, the police or FEMA to bail you out after a disaster, you're way behind. Yeah. And if you look at some of the FBI statistics, like on active shooter events, over half these events are going to begin and end before police even arrive. So are you training your business, you know, the, the staff of your business? Are you training the staff of your government office on what actions to take um, to try to reduce the impact of those types of events? And it's the same. We see it 
time and time again. Um, mm. And like, you know, if you look at like what we saw in Harvey, um, 80% of the households that flooded were, um, you know, not insured, who did insure their homes, got about an average of $117,000 to recover versus those who weren't got about three to $6,000 from FEMA to recover. And, you know, and that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the testament. Insurance is the first line of defense. Any house can flood and you've got to make insurance a priority in your budget. I remember going out uh, into the field in Hurricane Harvey. Um, I have a funny story where you, you have a ton of credit and I've been giving you credit and I haven't, uh, I've never even told you the story. So I'm about to tell you a cool story, but um, I was out in the field and there was a community where um, I was surveying these homes for data collection and um, they lived next to the city dump. We're talking like fence line city dump. And it was breaking my heart, you know, and um, you see these people who have nothing and um, they had nothing before the disaster. And you're looking at the the, the properties and you, you don't know if there was a storm that caused the damage or if it was like that beforehand. And so we have a problem here where um, we need to we need to address um, how to help people out truly recover, not getting back to normal because getting back to normal, it just makes you just as vulnerable. That drives me nuts, to be honest about FEMA. Get return to normal. You're just as vulnerable as you were if you return to exactly as it was. And if it's a hurricane or a natural disaster, it's predictable. It's going to happen there again. It's weather. I mean, it's not, it's not like a black swan event. And so we, we have to do much, much better in our field about incentivizing and encouraging people um, at, at any level of the, the poverty or wealth spectrum to, if they are impacted by disaster, to make sure that they're not impacted by disaster again. But I want to tell you the story because uh, it's kind of funny. Um, I like to say I cheated. It's kind of funny. So in Hurricane Harvey, you sent out a memo saying, be innovative. We're stretched to the max. We have three hurricanes. All this stuff is happening. Be innovative. FCO took that and sent it out uh, to... to the unit leaders and, the, and uh, across the team and said, if you have an innovative solution that will help uh, do it and uh, you know, ethical and all those, all those things. So I went over to legal and I said, I want a drone. And they're like, what? I'm like, I want a drone. I can get data so much faster with so much less resource. And everybody, I get, I get a thousand Cessnas up in the air who take a half a million photos and they all suck. And we were, we're manually going through those. Those are terrible. And we can, we can do better. Satellites are not getting the images that we need. And so legal helped me to, to navigate that system. We got the drone, we coordinated with FAA, we did the whole deal. And then I got deployed to the fires out in California and Cal OES, they were complaining about not getting the right aerial imagery because uh, the Reaper drone, even though it, it flies and it can see infrared where the fire's at, which is really helpful, obviously. Sometimes if it's flying at an angle, you're seeing me on YouTube right now, uh, it appears that the fire is between that and the home. And so it looks like the home is on fire. So how many homes really are on fire? So uh, they're like, we just want to get better imagery. And so our team was like, well, this guy has a drone. Like, oh, perfect. So coordinated with everybody, Air Ops, FAA, the whole deal. Got out there and myself and one other person, 2017, uh, we found 30 more homes than a 33-person PDA team. We did it in a third amount of time at almost no cost. Think how much cost it is to deploy that many people. And more importantly, we saved several homes because the Reaper drone had marked several homes destroyed for being on fire. And we were to prove that 
the, the fire hadn't actually burned the home. It stopped at the property line. Shout out to those firefighters. And so you fast forward three or four years, the SOP now is to have Civil Air Patrol flying drones to collect data for FEMA. One, that's awesome. So thanks for helping me out with that. But the other problem, just one second, the other problem is uh, it's just, it goes back to the same, oh, we're, we're just going to collect all the images we can. If I want amateur pilots to get out there and get a beautiful picture of the sunset around damage, great. No, no, no mark to the, the Civil Air Patrol for that, but you need trained people who can get out there and get information as fast as humanly possible to recover as fast as possible. It's just that whole declaration process is a crapshoot. <laughs> yeah. So, so John, you know, funny enough, I mean, I, I think I recall, um, I had a uh, data put together by the individual assistance guys in, in, inside FEMA to say, Hey, look, you know, how many knocks, if you are a homeowner and uninsured and you lose your home or whatever else, how many knocks at the, the virtual door would you get for all the assistance that comes out? And it's something like 14 knocks at the door. Okay, you're going to get 14 knocks at the door. You're going to get local NGOs. You're going to get local government. You're going to get code enforcement. You're going to get all these different knocks all the way up to FEMA, 14 knocks. And it's like, instead of doing all these damage assessments and, you know, and, and trying to understand everything, how do we get it down to one knock in a system that, that cuts across all of us? Whoever invents that's going to be, you know, highly rewarded one day. If you can get it down to one knock that says, if you enter this data into the homeowner, it can cut across the NGOs, the private sector, the public sector, or whatever, to help that individual. Um, you know, you know, so there, there is tons of room for, for innovation on that. Yeah. You know, within, and one of the things that we do too is like, you know, right now, uh, you know, please, if you're an ICS guru, and I, and I remember the question popping up about ICS, it's time to graduate from ICS. I love lights and sirens and I love response. You know, I love that, but it's the shortest phase of what we do in emergency management, right? And you need ICS. ICS is a staple of our profession, but you know what I need right now, you know, with Haggerty Consulting, I need people that understand disaster cost recovery grants management and project management. I do not need a, an ICS guru. And that's not a slap in the face. There might be a time where I need you, John, is that ICS guru. <laughs> but when you think about the complexities of what this is, I mean, FEMA faces an impossible. Everybody thinks, well, FEMA, the recovery is going so bad. You know, it's FEMA's fault. It's FEMA's fault. No, no, no. If you look at the three disaster uh, relief fund supplementals that were passed as a result of Harvey Ehrman Marine, the money went to 20 different federal government agencies to fund over 91 different recovery programs across the federal government. Jeez. Now that you fast forward to COVID, all of the CRF funding, new programs being invented, policy being created on the fly, but yet you still got the long-term recovery efforts of Harvey, Irma, Marie, and all these wildfires, coupled with trillions of dollars coming down. We don't need incident commanders right now. We need people that know how to teach a community what you're entitled to, how to sequence the funding that you're entitled to together so that you avoid duplication and use it in a manner to not only recover, but also become more resilient. Absolutely. And, but the problem is, is that because of the, you know, the, the legislation that was passed after 9-11 and the influence that was put on the grant is we put such a focus on ICS after 9-11 and Katrina that, you know, the law is there. We're still focusing on our training efforts. You've got to be NIMS compliant to get UIC funding. So that results in FEMA training more police officers than ICS than we do in emergency management. Like the numbers, the business Weird. doesn't even make 
sense on this. Yeah. And so we've got to, we got to step back from that and, and let these grants from Homeland Security, there should be a review on Homeland Security grants every three years that says, is this realistic anymore? Because a lot of the grant guidance that's put out or, or the law that established the UAC funding and everything else hasn't transformed to understand cybersecurity. Mm. You know, and so there's a lot of innovation that needs to take place and, 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 and innovation and adaptation to what's going on. Well, here's the problem, though, with our industry, and maybe you can kind of answer this, because what I find now, like like I said, I'm, I'm kind of more of the, of the data guy now. I'm, I'm looking for ways to actually change the field, and I'm doing that through the podcast or interview, interviewing people, which is great, but I actually want to find real solutions. I want to be able to say, here's all the training, here's all the mitigation you need to do so you don't have disaster. Hurricane rolls in, you can punch it right in the face and say we're fine, you know? But here's the problem. Like, the reality is we have a huge portion of our field and traditionally this is, would this would be more correct you have retired fire and police who get in there and say well i'm i'm retired cop so we're going to focus on active shooter i'm i'm uh you know firefighter so we're going to focus on evacuations and now we're we're having these conflicting generations where people like you and me who are emergency managers and understand like the the whole spectrum of emergency management and so how do you how do you combat we need to be innovative with we found solutions that work and uh, we've always done it like this. How do you combat we've always done it like this? Well, I think the, the, the Congress and the oversight committees within Congress need to make sure that the agency and Homeland Security is allowed to evolve with the threat, the changing threats, okay? Um, the other thing is, is that you gotta go through and scrub, uh, scrub the agency of legacy programs that really don't have the biggest bang for the buck anymore. I mean. You know, there's all these legacy items that have been thrown into FEMA that we're running just based on old law and past disasters that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago that we need to go back and say, is this really necessary anymore? So part of it is there's a strong partnership with FEMA. But here's the thing, John, we, we've got to stop looking at FEMA as the end-all, be-all answer to all our problems. And like I said, we tried bigger FEMA after Andrew. We've tried bigger FEMA after Katrina. Everybody wants a bigger FEMA after Maria. That's not the answer. I love FEMA. I love the agency. I love the golden-hearted people within it. But the problem is, is that it, it you know, it, I, I equate it to a chair. And I don't know if you've heard me, you know, use this or not. But it, imagine a chair with four legs. The first leg on that chair is a prepared citizenry, a true culture of preparedness within our citizenry that does not exist. Correct. It's it from CPR exist. to financial resiliency, proper insurance to, you know, not putting your business in vulnerable areas unless you've mitigated that business. The second chair is a strong state and local government. You know, true capability. Is their capability also growing? And, and far too often I hear, well, budgets are tight. You know, budgets are cut back. Well, Mother Nature doesn't care about that, John. So maybe, you know, maybe the budget guys in these local communities need to start really going through and understanding what their true priorities are. And part of it is going to be protecting their citizens from natural disasters. So stop, you know, stop hemming and hawing and handing me a bellyache excuse as to why you're not taking your emergency management, local government, state government seriously. The third leg is the public-private sector partnership. And what we tried to be innovative there was through the community lifelines, John. Uh, you know, FEMA doesn't control your destiny. We know nothing about turning the power back on in Puerto Rico. One, we didn't let the, uh, we didn't let the power grid rot over a two-decade period. And, you know, but everybody wants us to get the power back on, and it's not the Federal Electricity Management Agency. Well, who owns that power grid? You know, and if you look at who owns the power grid where you are in California, it's the private sector. Absolutely. Well, we don't control the private sector. 
But 85% of the infrastructure that you depend on to run your Snapchat to your flip the lights on is owned by the private sector. So in that public-private sector partnership, in that third leg, we've got to reconfigure our plans of saying, hey, John, you know, man, you run the power company. What do you need from me to get the lights back on? And it could be, well, I need you to move debris uh, from these areas so that I can access my, you know, my community. I need a place for my workers to stay or live. You know, I need a base camp. I need whatever. We've got to change the focus that we are not the incident commander <laughs> in all things. We don't control squat when it comes to the de- destiny, in my opinion. You know, we control some elements like search and rescue and those types of things. But the bigger element is we've got to rethink that public-private sector partnership. And that's what we tried to do in the innovation of community lifelines doctrine. The fourth leg is the firepower of FEMA. What's what's the right balance for FEMA? How do you set FEMA up for success in the future, John? I mean, quite frankly, we're going to continue to add to it. Now we're going to say, hey, you got to go do COVID points of dissemination, you know, and all this other stuff or whatever, you know, and it's like we keep adding to it and the dartboard keeps moving and the agency can't be, you know, successful. It's never going to be able to meet the demands of what's there. We got to set up realistic expectations. Here's the thing. In all four phases of preparedness, from, you know, preparedness, mitigation, response, and recovery, those four phases, and you need to throw the fifth one, prevention, in there. If all four of those legs are attached to that chair and the seat, your community is the seat, then that chair is pretty stable. But if you go into a disaster like we did in Louisiana during Katrina or Puerto Rico during Maria, and there's only one leg of that chair there, and it's called FEMA, it's never going to go well, and everybody's going to be upset, and then you're going to have people saying that, you know, there's disparities in the response or whatever else. And I would argue that FEMA has to work overtime and doubly hard, you know, on the Marias of the world and the Katrinas of the world when there is no prepared citizenry, there is no real strong state and local government, and there is no real meaningful public-private sector partnership. And, and again, on the public-private sector partnership, it's not what can Walmart do for FEMA. It is what can the emergency management in- industry do to redesign their plans, training, and exercise to make sure that, you know, the, the privately owned infrastructure is coming up in unison. And we see it all the time, John. You know, you'll have the power company fixing one sector of the community and the communications industry is fixing another sector of the community, you know, the, the, their part. And they're not even talking to each other yeah. because we've never set up a private sector infrastructure branch. And that led to the ESF 14 cross-sector community, you know, uh, community infrastructure coordination. You know, I mean, it... it so you're There's saying so we're much. all screwed. <laughs> that's pretty much funny. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. That, so let, let me let me back up here for a second because you're bringing up some really good good points, and I think emergency managers like myself are just like I mean you're you're hitting on all pistons here. You're hitting where like uh, you're hitting our pain points. I had a friend who's in um, Puerto Rico, and uh, they said that when they when they deployed, and they weren't even the first team deployed, so we won't even do that old mess. But they got there, and Puerto Rico was like, "Okay, what are you doing?" And they were like, well, well, what's your plan? And like, we don't have a plan. That's what your guys are supposed to do. And so there was like, there was absolutely zero understanding of what FEMA does. And so there's a resilient, there's a messaging problem there. There's a training problem there. Um, you're talking about critical infrastructure and using those public part- private partnerships, full scale exercises. I've been to several L- NLEs, the national level exercises. I've also been, you know, it, you know, state and even local. I have rarely seen, if ever. The, those uh, the, outside of like maybe a couple of OADs, maybe Red Cross is involved, maybe a couple of others. But if you have uh, electric companies involved, if you have these other companies involved who have a stake in the game, and so they understand what's going on, 
There, there's the there's the other very real problem though, and one problem I've been like absolutely trying to address and trying to overcome here is that nobody communicates. the The emergency manager that that term manager is a misnomer. It's false. We're supposed to be emergency coordinators. The coordinators. Best, yep. The yeah. best emergency coordinator in the world is somebody who says, "Here's everybody is involved. Supposed to be involved. Get them all into the same room." Make sure that they're not arguing or competing with interest. That the fact that states were were out trying to outbid each other for COVID is just freaking mind-boggling to me. First of all, and then like yeah. I, I know people right now who, in FEMA who are deployed to to help out with the uh, with COVID um, uh, dispensary of the vaccine, and it's like, dude, you are not a public health expert. Uh, I know some loggies who are phenomenal. Who like okay, yeah, you can do like. Uh, supply chain management, but like, why are we adding more to the plate to people who don't have this background? I did Ebola response as part of the National Cancer Institute. I, I like I, I understand a pandemic response and trying to get uh, stop pandemic response, but I had a specific background to that. Why are people who don't have a background to that or don't have a scientific background to that focusing on that? So adding things more to the plate yeah. is just absurd. Anyways, well, let's talk dark. about COVID. For a sec. <laughs> let's talk about COVID for a second. Um, there's a lot of confusion. And let me ask you, John, real quick, what's the difference between the CDC, HHS, NIH, ASPR, <laughs> local public health, state public health, who actually is in charge? And then you've got a White House task force or you've got, a, you know, whatever. Who, who do we listen to? Uh, second question, what's the qualification of a local public health official? Mm. What's the qualification okay. of an emergency manager? A lot of times, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot of times it's a medical doctor. Well, medical doctors. My dad and my sister are both medical doctors. I love them to death, but they know nothing about logistics. <laughs> they know nothing about you know, and and uh, you know they know the science piece of it. But they would you know the whole public health industry was never designed to you know run a pandemic, and it's unrealistic the way that the planning structure has been put forward. So there's a couple of things that have to happen. If you want to give pandemic to FEMA, then you need to outfit them and you need to consolidate all these public health entities that most Americans are confused by. Okay. Um, two, it was a total breakdown in my opinion of the health and medical community lifeline that we identified, John. And it's not just when you think of mitigation, it's not just brick and mortar and we've got to adapt to sea level rise. It is, it is mitigating critical supply chains. Okay, that you don't own at FEMA, by the way. Okay, and so when you think about the the COVID event, total breakdown in private sector supply chains. One, hospitals don't store more than a week to two weeks worth of supplies. They depend on just-in-time logistics. They've never done continuity planning around their vendors that that that, that supply them. The bigger vendors that supply every hospital unfortunately have sold, you know, a lot of their contracts out, you know, to China, Malaysia. And when you look at all the PPE before we get into this, we created a strategic national stockpile that was never designed to handle a pandemic. It was more of a biological chemical attack on a big city. But what we've done is, is that our supply chains for war fighters in Iraq and Afghanistan for PPE and medical supplies to what we're facing now was completely dependent on private sector owned supply chains. And then the government panics and says, activate the DPA, get FEMA involved. Boom. And then FEMA is faced with this fact. And I try to, I try to bring it up in a, in a manner to relate to people that aren't in this industry. And it's like, you know, John, imagine if you owned a cookie store and your first order was for 700 million cookies. <laughs> and you've got to coordinate that. And yeah. you've got to make sure that the cookie doesn't rot. Yeah. And you've got, you know, 
think about everything that goes into that. It's so much more than the federal government. And going forward, what I don't like is that we're not setting up realistic battle rhythms in our industry now for the future. This virus is going to be with us. We need to start going back to the private sector, to the Walmarts, of the, you know, the CVSs and Walmarts and the Amazons of the world or the private medical providers and saying, all right, how do we open up these normal privately owned supply chains to get this shot in your arm rather than FEMA, DOD, you know, government options. Yeah. And there's got to be a handoff. And I'm, or you're never going to get ahead and win that game. All right. So you, you, again, you're bringing up so many points here. We could probably have you on a hundred times and uh, talk about all these stuff, but Let's talk about some of these solutions because we've identified several of the gaps and you've, you've suggested several solutions already. But what I want to do, thinking about that local emergency manager or the, you know, people, emergency managers for organizations, schools, campuses, that kind of, uh, that kind of level. Um, we, I, want you, I want you to be able to, to have your advice to them as well because what, what you're talking about is everything that at the federal level can impact you at the local level. And so you need to become much more resilient or, or my, my opinion, tough against disasters. And so how do you do that? And so let's talk about a, a couple of use cases based off of some of the questions, again, that we got offline. Um, and so like some of the questions were, were really focused on that local emergency manager. You're just starting out in the field and you got hit by COVID or, you know, what, my first disaster with FEMA was Hurricane Matthew. And I was uh, put as the GIUL there, and I was like, "Okay, uh, here we go." And so, what do you do when you get that seven hundred million order of cookies um, as a as a new owner? And uh, let's kind of start with that. Well, so like step one, two, three. What do you think you should be doing as an emergency manager right now? As an emergency manager right now, let's see. Um, well, there's a couple things. <laughs> Well, let's back up. If you're a new emergency manager getting into the field, you need to learn how to write operationally because there are not enough planners right now that can plan on the fly for doing points of dissemination to whatever is needed. Um, two, you need to learn project management skills. So um, these universities that are uh, in disaster, emergency management, you know, curriculum, I, I need project management professionals, you know, as much as I need, you know, people that understand all elements of emergency management, for example. Um, to, the, the, you know, knowing what I know now, if, if, uh, if it had landed on my plate, I would have called in the big boys. I would have called in the med lines of the world, the, the Cardinals, the big medical distributors. And I would have called in the big, you know, Modernas and those to come in to say, you got to tell me how to, you know, operate these, these privately owned community, you know, you know these privately owned supply chains. Um, yeah. You don't get a flu shot by the government every year. You get a flu shot largely because of the private sector. So how do we duplicate that except exponentially bigger? And then the other thing, John, is that, you know, going back to the whole, um, you got to get 700 million cookies, you know, out for your first order is how you set the expectation of citizens, right? So here again, the information's all over the place. Social media is less than accurate. We can come back to that. And, and a lot of it, a third of it's influenced by foreign actors, okay, that, that make Absolutely. us look stupid, you know. Um, to, there are too many cooks in the kitchen when it comes to who's in charge and what is the ultimate, what kind of mask do I need, you know, and, and, you know, and like the guidance that's coming out. And, and in, the, uh, in the hurricane world, I will tell you, as John Q. Citizen, if we were going to issue an evacuation, you need to listen to the local emergency management director 
who is putting out the warning order guidance. Well, that's not the case here. It's very top down. It's coming from a White House czar or the CDC or HHS and not the local public health official who was not prepared to handle this pandemic. I mean, because they've got a big day job as it is, you know, pandemic planning is not one of their, you know, things that they sat around and talked about on Monday morning staff meetings. Right. So we've got to go back and reconfigure, but you've got to set the expectations of citizens of saying, here's what we're trying to do. And it's going to be a while in the meantime, do these three things, not 15 things, not 20 things, but do these three things. Prioritize, prioritize, prioritize. There's no such thing as plan B. Um, I think what served me best in FEMA specifically was that I had learned the skill to prioritize. Um, Things get left let let go. Things are things fall to the side. You can't do everything, and um, I think that is why I was able to um, uh, talking from a career perspective, be able to propel myself to to the point where I felt like um, if I said something, it meant something. And I think that would be uh, the other point of uh, advice to emergency managers out there is learn to prioritize as fast as possible. You talk about pro, uh, project management. Um, is going to be a, a little bit of a, a plug here, but we endorse Futurity IT because I was looking at some of their uh, some of their products, and they have a product called Athena. Um, again, plug here, um, so take it as you will. But um, they designed an app that's like really intuitive, and it's specifically project management for emergency managers. And so the whole thing's customizable, and it's task tracking. And, and you know, if you look at most of project management. Um, it's designed by tech companies who like do agile or do these other type of water flow, um, methodologies where it's all about fail fast and it's all about dollars, but for emergency managers on the, on the blue sky stuff, like your day to day, you need to be able to learn what's happening, what's most important. So when you're in a disaster, you're, you're, you're able to say, here's one, two, three, I have to get these done or I fail. So plug there, but, uh, well, well, John, hold on that. Yeah. So if you're a local emergency manager right now and you're drowning staff-wise, there's no reason for you to be drowning staff-wise right now with COVID and natural disasters. Because one of the things that we did with, say, the DRA is we increased management cost provisions so that you could hire force account labor or you could hire a consulting firm like us to come in and augment your response staff so that you can go back to your day job or manage the cost recovery piece of understanding what you're entitled to after, you know, CRF supplemental comes out or whatever. And so some states are doing incredibly well. Everybody's going at it a little differently, but there's one state that we are working with that has, has put forward over a billion dollars of public assistance funding. Well, the management cost provisions attached to that would allow that state to hire probably 122 full-time employees for two years. Wow. But nobody's teaching them this. And they're all looking around of where's, you know, where's FEMA staff, where's state staff, whatever. There's no reason for you to have a staff shortage. You look at the uh, some of the money that just came out from the Treasury, Emergency Rental Assistance Program, 10% management cost provision. Every state's getting a minimum of $200 million. Some states are getting like $2 billion. Jeez. 10% management cost to hire the infrastructure or the supply of systems you need to manage the disaster. And we don't teach that. We teach people preliminary damage assessments. We teach mm-hmm. people the ICS, but we do not teach emergency managers how to take advantage of the management cost provision 
And it was strategic in the DRRA to get the management cost of 5% and 7% at the local and state level for a reason. I did not have any more staff I could deploy for the $41 million and less disaster. You need to go use your management cost provisions to hire force account labor or the private sector consulting firms that know this. Hmm. And, you know, and but, but yet there's this, sometimes government looks badly upon the consulting firms that are out there when actually they can help you out tremendously. Well, you just showed your va- value. I mean, obviously a value as an emergency manager to Hagerty, but you just showed your value value there as well, because you're able to go in there and, and tell these states, Hey, we can actually help you do this. We can do this for a couple of years. And so uh, my, my biggest thing is just the, the bureaucracy is good because it weeds out some of the stupid. But at the same time, like it makes it really hard for an emergency manager. I bet there's emergency managers right now that list listen to you and said, what? Who've been killing themselves for a year, who are yeah. exhausted. I've had so many people uh, text me, call me, whatever, friends across uh, the United States who are just exhausted. Who's, it's like, dude, I, I need a way out. Like, I, I, I can't I can't sustain this. Like mentally, physically, I'm done. And so what you just said right there is like, one higher Haggerty, which probably people should do, but also like as as a uh, consulting firm, you can say I can help supplement you, and the dollars are already there. We're not adding to your budget. Like that's that's the whole whole deal right now is to f- help people figure out yeah. how can I add, how can I be a plus one to you without costing a plus one, and y- you just call that out. So like that's that's I'm gonna make that a clip for part of the show because people need to hear that. But uh, you know, you're saying some really good stuff there. Um, all right, so let's let's switch topics here a little bit because I'm going to read a couple of questions here, if that's okay with you, and yeah, uh, maybe we'll we'll uh, one on that mark. So here we go. Emily says, uh, so you, you kind of called this out, but l- let's talk about more of a general sense with FEMA. Maybe what states uh, make the best use of their own funds, the federal funds? Do you have like a what top- states make the best use? Yeah, which states are most resilient on um, to to emergency management? That's tough to see. Um, I can tell you what four states get the most money historically. It's New York, Florida, Texas, and California. And um, you know, and, and, and it goes back to that successful. Um, what's the successful formula of emergency management? Those four states have very strong, you know, state level emergency management agencies. Uh, and, and many, you know, widely respected local emergency management agencies as a result of the money that they get and the experience that they've been through. I think other states should look to see how they're designed and how you can duplicate that on a, on a reduced level uh, to, to some degree. But those are the four states that historically get the most amount of money and are most self-sufficient in many cases. But when they, when they can't handle the big ones, they call in people the consulting firms to be able to come in or hire force account labor to augment their capabilities. Mm. Yeah, that's now a, there are some small states that do tremendously well. I mean, you know, you've got not small states, but medium sized states. Um, you know, Maryland, North Carolina, you know, there's some of my home state does a, a tremendous job. But, you know, they're off the radar screen from Texas and Florida and those types of things, but they've been hit with a lot and, you know, and manage, they're managing a lot as well. So there's a lot of good states and then there's some that probably don't do it as well that I will keep to myself as <laughs> <team in this laughs> Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that's, that's probably you know, what it's called. Squeaky, there were definitely some squeaky wheels out there that, uh, you know, you're just banging your head against the, the, the desk. I think saying, yes, we'll, we'll come in and do it for you. You it, know, it gets back into that loop. I've definitely deployed to some of those states. And so I could talk about that forever, which I won't. But I what would happen is I would get in there and um, they get stuck in this rut of we don't have the money, uh, the personality type, maybe um, lack of training, whatever. And they start to find all these excuses. And then that just per- perpetuates. They don't ever try to find a, a way out. They don't have to, they don't find a, a way to break that loop. And doing any one of those things will help break that loop. New, new fresh blood in there would help. Uh, trying to access grant dollars or, or getting um, somebody in there to do some training um, would help. And so I would go in there as a national IMAC guy, again, talking about FEMA Day specifically, and I would start trying to help build relationships where relationships weren't. I felt a lot, a lot of my job actually was relationship building. Um, just between yeah. FEMA and state and learning the, what they could provide. And um, like, holy crap, that shouldn't have happened in the disaster, but it, it happened a lot, unfortunately. John, that was the whole purpose of the uh, FEMA integration teams to the state level. Um, you know, FEMA, I recognized very quickly and throughout, you know, my experience that I, I've always thought that FEMA's customer service um, business concepts were broken. Um, now think about this. I mean, when did you see somebody from FEMA if you're the local emergency manager? Probably at a conference, maybe at a regional, uh, you know, meeting here or there. Um, but largely, you know, a majority of local emergency managers never see FEMA until the recovery phase when everything's blown up and, and tensions are high, right? Mm-hmm. And so the whole the whole purpose of the, you know, well, the FEMA integration teams was twofold, and hopefully they'll be continued. One. Why can't I embed staff? We're like one of the only federal government agencies that doesn't have state level offices all over the place, like the FBI, and they even have them in big cities. Yeah. You know, why can't we go out and work day in and day out, you know, on the planning, training, and exercise side with you? And then when you get hit, I know exactly what you need. I understand how you bring in resources or what, where your gaps yeah. are. And I often thought that the whole threat hazard identification risk assessment process was a major liability to FEMA because, and Homeland Security because you were, you were requesting, hey, what are your gaps, John? What are your gaps? Well, my question when I was in office was, well, how? what are we doing to overcome those gaps? Okay. And each one of them was different. You know, somebody could say housing. Somebody could say pandemic planning. Somebody could say whatever. And so the FIT team was, here's what your report said. I'm going to send you a housing specialist and a logistics person. What else do you want, you know, from that standpoint? And let's let's help you overcome those gaps. To, awesome. to change, transform that. But OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, fought me tooth and nail, basically trying to argue that I was doing the job of the state and local government. And it wasn't about that. I don't want to do the state and local government's job. I wanted to basically build a strong relationship. As you said earlier, we are coordinators. We are communicators. We are you know, collaborators that, that build teams to overcome problems. So here's a personal question then. And I asked this to Todd DeVoe again. I, I, gave, I promise I'll give him a shout out. So that's the second shout out. That's, that's all you get, Todd. But, uh, Todd's a good guy, man. I like Todd. I like Todd a lot too. That's why I'm willing to do it. But um, this, this is the question. CEM, Certified Emergency Manager. I am not a fan of the CEM. And I'm going to get a lot of pushback on that. Because it's, it's uh, to be honest, it's, it's pretty low level. Of, like I don't really trust somebody if they have their CEM. Like I, I can't trust their if they're battle hardened or not. 
but why doesn't FEMA get into that game? We have like the practitioner course, we have EMI, we have all these different things. Why won't FEMA actually come out and say, we are going to create a standardization of, if I get into a community, all all county emergency managers have a grant to be able to go and take this course, to be able to get certified, state guys, the whole deal, and start working through an academy that way. So first of all, with the CEM, I'm all for accreditations and people, you know, continuing education and, and reaching a standard, no doubt about it. Um, you know, and I met with IAM several times uh, regarding the CEM. I would like to see there be more operational, um, you know, logistics and absolutely management and qualifications that are there. I think that they can continue to to evolve. But I'll be honest with you, like, let's let's step way back. Um, one of the things that if I could have stayed eight years at FEMA and gutted it out in one of the most dynamic times to ever serve your country, and I say that laughingly, um, you know, if I could have been there eight years, I would have totally exploded the entire hiring process at FEMA. Not to say that we don't have great people inside FEMA. and The hiring process you know, you sucks. Have, it does. It yeah, sucks. the hiring process. But, but here's what we do at FEMA. So they advertise individual positions. Um, we need a mitigator. We need a planner. We need a recovery housing specialist. And unfortunately, John, if you flew Coast Guard helicopters in Katrina really well, you know, you could apply for a GS-15 recovery job inside FEMA with no recovery experience and get it. And it's not that you're not awesome flying that helicopter in the Coast Guard, but I say that because the Coast Guard would never let me come out of FEMA and just fly a helicopter. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, they, that'd so be a bad move. <laughs> right. So, so the the bottom line is, and I couldn't even go be, I couldn't even drive a fire truck right now if I got a job with the city of Hickory, North Carolina Fire Department today. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've got to go through the steps and qualifications to get where I am. So the whole goal eventually, and we started going down this path was, and this incorporates the FEMA integration team again is how do we go to an academy-style hiring process where we hire people in groups of 30 and 40, you send them to Emmitsburg, and they learn all things Stafford Act. You actually have to read the laws and the policies that govern what it is you do, okay? And I would argue that the majority of emergency managers have never read the Stafford Act. And, you know, and then you sit back and, you, you know, you've got to learn the classroom. And then we send you to the CDP for functional exercises and training and role-playing and different things. And then... We send you out into a FEMA integration team at the state level, and you're going to go out there for two to three years and learn how states receive FEMA assistance or guidance. Is the guidance working? You know, Mm. how do we receive that? And then how the state is going to be requesting. And you learn that. You actually go out and sit down with local emergency managers. And then from there, you can apply to one of the three FEMA regions you want to live in and try to run a regional program. And then from there, you can go to headquarters and you can run national programs. And you've got to stop making the FEMA administrator a presidentially appointed position. It sets the agency up for failure just because of politics and political games that are unnecessary and going on all the time in D.C. If FEMA screws up a response, the other party is bashing on FEMA. If FEMA screws up a response on this end and the other party is in charge, then FEMA is screwing up. You've got to stop. FEMA needs to be a neutral agency. Uh, that has the ability to support state and local governments without going through some arbitrary disaster declaration process to figure out how much uninsured public property you've lost. Mm. And it, we've got to get it to a point where if you need a bucket truck, 
why would I hold a bucket truck back from you because you didn't have enough uninsured losses? It's stupid. <laughs> the whole disaster declaration process was a great idea in 1979. Mm. Time to rethink it. And I also think that you got to get the word emergency out of FEMA, John. Um, mm. You know, maybe it's the National Disaster Relief and Resiliency Agency or something like that. I don't know. But how do you do that? And then you start, you know, you hire people like in the academy classes, John, imagine if you could hire like one of the biggest problems that we had is we didn't have enough bilingual staff when Harvey, Irma and Maria hit mm. Spanish speaking populations in California, Texas, Florida and Puerto Rico. Holy cow. Yeah. What if we could hire bilingual, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 90 bilingual individuals out of college with whatever degree and then train them in emergency management Man, and send them out you know, so this is big picture you know, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's our, our whole industry is ripe for innovation and change. You just got to get the uh, politicians in in DC who have forgotten that their job is compromised. You've got to get them to sit down and put their politics aside and start focusing on the American citizen and saying, how do we protect them from disasters? Mm-hmm. And, and, not just try to do it in a bubble like they often do after big events like 9-11 or Katrina. They've got to invite the expertise in to reorganize for the future. And, you know, the experience and not just people like me, but it's people like you, John. It's it's people that were out there, you know, wiping the dust off disaster victims, you know, and yeah. and, um, you know, it's and that's it. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, it's a great answer. Obviously, you've thought a lot about this, and it's, uh, we definitely need to move to- towards that. And so, the, the original question about like CEM, I, I think you're right. Uh, we need, we need accreditation. I, I just wish C- the CEM was, um, I, was more trustworthy, in my opinion. Like, I wish I could see a CEM and trust it. It's the, it's the number one reason why I didn't, I haven't done it, despite having 10 plus years, because I can, I can work without it. But Todd, uh, oh crap, that's the third uh, reference to Todd. But- hey, well, John, you know what's funny? You know what's funny? Nothing scares me more than walking into a local emergency manager's office and the whole wall is full <laughs> of every FEMA independent training course they've ever taken. That oh, right there hilarious. is an indication of, oh, man. I know exactly, exactly what you're <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I went and met with this guy, every, literally every single online course he had taken, every single thing. And I, like I said, I've been in this for a while. I have two degrees in emergency management. I've been out. I, I've been in with multiple federal agencies. I've been at the local level. But whoa, that's the whole deal. This guy was talking. I understood about a third of the acronyms he was using. And I was like, well, no wonder you don't get anything done. Like, it was just, it was just hilarious to me. So, okay. I got to do a big shout out there for this question with Kevin Coleman. Uh, he was on the show before. And he asked a question. He's a big fan of AmeriCorps. Okay, he was AmeriCorps. That's how he started off in the field. And you're talking about working up in the field. That's that's definitely what he's done. And he's uh, at headquarters now. Um, really, really great uh, experience. Obviously, um, I have uh, high respect for him. But this is what he asked. He said, "So much to unpack uh, with this episode. As an alumni advocate and current program manager for FEMA Corps, I'm curious if Brock has any thoughts and what the future of the program." could look like and how young professionals be involved, engaged with EEM from the AmeriCorps perspective. So before you answer your question, I, I want to ask you one thing. In your opinion, do you see uh, AmeriCorps as interns? As interns? Yeah. 
So, so funnily enough, um, I see it as a as the baseline entry level position into FEMA, potentially into FEMA. But here's the problem: it's not that easy. You can go to AmeriCorps for two years and still not qualify for any job that comes open in FEMA because you don't meet the qualifications. You don't have the years of experience. You don't have veterans preference. You don't have mm. all of these things. And the problem with AmeriCorps and what we saw in FEMA is that, again, um, they don't have a real shot at going to the next level unless some FEMA staffer, you know, redesigns the entire position description to meet their background to hire them. And I that's know. the problem. And, you know, and that's the problem. Um, you know, it's, it's um, you know, and, and even with the local hiring process, there was a question on local hiring process. I like the local hiring process, too. And it, and it puts disaster victims possibly in a job. If they lost their job, you know, because of the hurricane or tornado, then maybe they can be a local hire and push forward. But what was interesting is there's disparities and in, in denial of entry um, because of the way the federal hiring, hiring process works. And if you're from the USVI, maybe you haven't had a lot of experience of writing a resume. Well, if you want to be considered at FEMA, the first, the first thing you got to write, you know, you got to win is the writing contest that the software absorbs your resume and reads through it, picks out keywords, and then you qualify and you go, you know, get an interview or whatever else. Yeah. You know, and so even if the, even if somebody goes through two years of the AmeriCorps and they're the cream of the crop of the group, you can't get to them. That's because absolutely we've right. Made, we've, We've made it too, too crazy to get hired. And, and we're not, we're not to direct hire. At, at, at the same point, there, there should be some kind of step process of, to be able to become more qualified, whether it's accreditation or academy or whatever, uh, long-term process. The, when we took away direct hires, I thought that was, uh, it was a, it was a poor choice. I got, I got hired because of a direct hire. I was out there with Georgetown with my program and I said the right thing. And, um, I was working in DC, happy with that job, but tap, tap, tap right on my shoulder. Hey, you said the right thing. I want to see you in my office right now. And I literally walked into the office at FEMA IMAT West and, um, they said, tell me more about what, what that thought process was. And we talked for 30 minutes and said, we want to hire you. And, um, that was like the, the luckiest moment of my life because I, I, I loved my experience at FEMA. In fact, the fact that, um, uh, soon to be administrator Chriswell is a former IMAT. I was like, yes, but uh, <laughs> it, it just goes to show that, uh, like, you're you're totally right, and I, I'm I'm glad to hear a, a FEMA administrator say that. I'm I'm glad that a, you said something actually in Napa, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. You said you have to leave FEMA to get a promotion in FEMA. I did, you know, and that's funny. I um. I loved being at FEMA, man. When I, you know, and I got to see FEMA at the best. When I went in on the morning of 9-11 and interviewed and then eventually got the job, man, you know, FEMA was one of the highest places to work at the time in the federal government. And I went in as a GS-11-12. Mm. I worked my way up. My boss retired and I was able to specialize and go into his spot because we were designing evacuation plans. And I was rare. I went from an 11 to a 13-14 in five years. But then after Katrina... But then after Katrina, um, man, we just got beat up and literally, uh, you know, every, the, you know, the scapegoat issues came down on FEMA. We got to have somebody, we got to have a butt to kick. We got to have somebody to blame. 
And, you know, then FEMA was absorbed under Homeland Security and all this other stuff that was going on. And it was not a healthy place to work. And I just, I decided to leave. And it, and, and in retrospect, it broke my heart leaving the agency because I loved it. But I also knew it was not the environment I wanted to work in for the next five years either. So I stepped out into the private sector. And when I did that, John, you wouldn't believe the number of phone calls I got. Man, if I had known you were going to leave FEMA, I would have called you to see if you want to come work for us. And so funny enough, I joke that, um, you know, if I had stayed in the regional office as a 13, I probably would have reached 15, you know, 20 years later a GS-15, you know, management later, 20 years later, yeah. somebody would have to die or retire. And I couldn't see the, the, the ladder. And I took that with me. We tried to solve it, but the, it's, it's hard to solve. But I literally left. And it's easier for you to apply for a senior executive service job from outside the agency than it is within the agency. Because, you know, I can take a consultant, give me five years with you, John, as a consultant, and I can put you on 20 different projects that you manage. And then you build the leadership skills you need to apply for the senior executive service job. So forget the GS-15. You just go into the SES. Yeah. And that's the problem with the entire hiring process. There is no advancement like the FBI or the Secret Service or whatever. It's, you know, yeah. we hire and plug people in at various levels from the outside of the agency. And then we lose a lot of people, John, as a result of that. We lose a lot of people that can't get up there. I, I jumped out and I had multiple people. Yeah, I, I jumped out. Honestly, you weren't the reason why I left, but I, my wife got pregnant and we said we didn't want to travel. Uh, I didn't want to travel. I want to be a dad. I want to be home. And so that was the reason why I jumped out. But at the same time, I, I understood that it was the best career move for me to get out because I had actually pigeonholed myself by, again, planning operations and then doing GIS. All people could see was this GISer, this guy who makes maps. First of all, that's not what GIS does. Uh, we can talk about that forever. But at the same time, I was like, Anytime I applied for a position at back in ops, which which is where I really wanted to do, and I had had the most experience in, they're like, "But you do GIS, but you do GIS," and so I was like, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump out here for a while," and so I'm really glad that you just told me that Haggerty's gonna hire me for the next five years and manage. I'm gonna manage twenty projects, but but well, seriously, for the like, new emergency manager coming out of college. You're not going to get a job with FEMA unless you are, you know, a reservist, unless you can get into the reserve, ca you know, the, the, yeah. the disaster assistance cadre that goes out there. That That's probably the best way in. But you're not going to apply from a master's degree without any experience and get a GS 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 position inside, G you know, inside FEMA. Absolutely. So my, my advice is go look at the consulting firms that can't find enough good people right now to get work done on behalf of FEMA and the state and local governments. And, yeah. and uh, not only that, but look at the industry, the private sector industry that's growing in emergency management. I mean, we do work for all kinds of restaurant restaurants and, you know, uh, mall corporations, you know, airports are hiring emergency managers. I mean, it's just, there's a lot, the field, it's a great time to be in the field because there's so much money and, issues that are occurring now's the time to be in but don't just focus on getting into fema i, I think that's an excellent point that um i think that's a good point to end on to be honest there's so many different areas outside of fema fema has a lot of opportunities and so uh, take that but i am really really grateful that i had spent time with the red cross i spent time at the national cancer institute which is under nih which is under hhs so i know i do know a little bit about that so i thought your point was hilarious there but um you know, I'm grateful that I was with Reaching Efforts, and now that I'm 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 working as a um, 
a cons- a consultant myself. I work as like a basically a subcontractor where I go in there and I, I work on I get to work on all these different projects outside of FEMA. And so I have all this opportunity now to to keep learning. And so there's all these different avenues. And so whether you're working at a campus level or you're working for a hospital emergency manager, what what name you, um, just get out there and keep learning. And that's always the message of this podcast. And so th- thank you for again, Brock, for coming on the show, for spending your, so much time with us. Really, it's been a really great experience. Yeah, thanks, John. Happy to do it, man. All right. So everybody, of course, as always, if you liked this episode, we want that five-star review. So give us that five-star review. You can also uh, follow us on Instagram at Disaster Tough Podcast. We'll be posting a little bit more about Brock and some of the the answers he had. Basically, we'll be pulling that in from uh, LinkedIn, from other sources there. Brock is a phenomenal emergency manager, obviously. You heard that today. It's all about the dollars. It's all about getting the job done. It's about mitigation. Find ways as an emergency manager to get the job done. That's how you become disaster tough. That's how you can help other people. Make sure to follow us on uh, Instagram, a disaster tough podcast and stay tough. Thanks.